Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Someone's in the kitchen, I know. Ho, ho, ho. Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Strumming on the old banjo and singing please. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I am continuing my examination of the novella collection Four Past Midnight with the follow-up to the review of the story The Langoliers. This week I am examining the two-part ABC TV miniseries from 1995 starring David Morris, Dean Stockwell, and Bronson Pinchot. Now, look, I am clearly a fan of Stephen King. I host a weekly podcast, and in many of those weeks, I'll release multiple episodes. I'm enough of a fan to commit myself to these reviews and recordings, so at the end of the day, yes, I'm a fan. But being a fan does not mean that you have to like everything that comes out by a particular artist. In fact, I'd argue that if you blindly love something without weighing it against other entries in an artist's collection, you aren't a fan at all. The reason I say this is because I did not, I did not want to review this miniseries. At. All. The novella was fun. I liked the novella, even if the internal logic and character motivation somewhat felt forced. But just because Stephen King writes something doesn't mean that should be made into a movie or a TV miniseries. I mean, I know that at this point, most of the publications had already been snatched up, but still, The Langoliers is a strange choice. It's a hard sell, even for King fans. And if you're going to make it into a movie, stretching it across two different episodes is a lot to ask. So, to make a long story short, I was not looking forward to watching this. How was the experience? Well, you're going to have to keep listening to find out. First, I'm going to read a listener email. You know I love getting emails from you guys, so just keep it coming. If you have time to write an email, head on over to and subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and write a review while you're at it. The more reviews and subscriptions I get, the easier it'll be for people to find the podcast. So, the email. Uh, this is from Wes, and Wes writes, Hello again. I'm jumping all over the place with your podcast, and right now I'm just a few minutes into your review of Revival. You said something that I wanted to comment on and wholeheartedly agree with you. You mentioned some of his more recent books like Duma Key and Lisey's Story and how you didn't feel that they were stories for you when you were in your early 20s, but when you read them later in life, or read them later in life, there will be a lot for you to pick up. I think you're 100% dead on. A little background on my time as a constant reader. I honestly can't remember how old I was when I read my first King book or what it was, but it was somewhere around the time I was 10 or 11. By the time I had gotten to high school in 1987, I had read everything he had published up until the point and was buying his books in hardcover the day they came out. Shortly after high school, I had read everything he's written twice, and right up to the right old age of 42, I've always bought his books or more often these days, ebooks, and started reading on the day of their release. With the exception of a few that have come out in the last 10 years, I've reread all of them for multiple times, from It, on my 12th right now, to The Stand, six times for the uncut version, two for the original, to Bag of Bones and Hearts in Atlantis, seven times for both, and, well, you get the point. And what's been 100% constant is that whatever age I was at the time, and what was going on in my life gave basically made each reread a whole different experience. This may sound a little odd, but given the fact that Cy King is 25 years older than I am and was once a teacher as my dad was, dad was a reading teacher so reading was ingrained in me from an early age, I always sort of felt that King was a father figure of sorts in my life. 
maybe more of a slightly weird uncle who was great at telling spooky stories and scaring the hell out of you in the middle of the night. A few times I've made it a point to reread a King book that he had written at the same age I was. And while I'm not saying that it helped me get into his mind or anything like that, simply coming at it with the knowledge that in a sense we're both the same age invariably opened my eyes and my comprehension of whatever book I was reading at the time. Anyways, it seems like every time I email you, I keep wanting to say more and more, but I'm going to put a pin in it from now. I'll be emailing you more in the future, and if the nature of my emails are too rambling, I don't expect you to read them on your podcast. If you decide to, feel free to cut them up however you want, but honestly, I'm not expecting you to. That's not why I keep writing. As I said in previous emails, just great to have such a high-quality podcast dedicated to my favorite writer, and they've helped me look at his books with new and different perspectives. Long day and pleasant nights. Wes, thanks again for writing in. Keep those emails coming. These are the type of emails that I love getting because I think that's important that we're able to share our Stephen King experiences. And this is the kind of experience that I think that that we need to be able to share and and how it reading Stephen King means something to us and, and how they're snippets of life and we can experience more from the books at different time periods in our lives. I, th- I think that that's important. So keep them coming, guys. Keep on writing to StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. All right, guys, now here we go. I'm about to board that plane and head back through that time warp to the Langoliers. So here we go. Fun fact to start off, despite it being portrayed in LA, the airport locations were actually filmed in Bangor, and I learned that from Stu, the Stephen King Tours tour guide. Uh, I released a bonus episode about my experience on the Stephen King tour a while ago, and I strongly recommend signing up on sk-tours.com. Sorry. So I strongly recommend signing up on sk-tours.com so you can experience being driven through the town that inspired Dairy Maine, the home of Pennywise the Dancing Clown. So the fact that they filmed the movie in King's hometown is a pretty fun tidbit of information. Unlike the novel, we don't start off with Brian. We meet Nick, our swashbuckling James Bond assassin. And one by one, we meet our other characters, Dinah, Toomey. And with Toomey, we meet another sidekick who tells us exactly why he's going to Boston and what his conflict is. So, so far, right away, not gonna lie, this movie is not great. We're then introduced to Brian Engel, played by Stephen King audiobook narrator David Morse. And not only was he in this Stephen King adaptation, he was also in The Green Mile. Engel learns about his ex-wife's death and the Aurora Borealis, and we pass by Toomey, who is giving an employee a hard time about the window seat. Now, Bronson Pinchot is not who I had pictured as, as Toomey, and the television version isn't quite who I think Toomey is, but Pinchot is one reason to watch this movie. There's not many, then he's definitely a reason to watch it. He's phenomenal in this role. I mean, he's not going to win any awards, but he's definitely fun to watch, and he couldn't be any different from the television role that had made him famous at that point, Balky Bartokamus from Perfect Strangers. You know, and here he's just not aggressive and dangerous. He's got this oily quality about him. He, he just, and the camera also likes to zoom up on his face and his sunken eyes that are just manic. It's, it is a high point in an otherwise low experience while watching this movie. Anyway, almost right away, the movie's central threat kicks in. Just as in the novella, Dinah discovers that the plane is gone. Now, in the book, it was an incredibly tense scene because we experience it through her perspective. 
which is to say through her blindness. With Dinah screaming, everyone that had been sleeping is awakened and drawn together. But not before we get some very, very primitive mid-90s special effects of the plane flying through the night sky. It's pretty rough, guys. Bronson Pinchot then gets an opportunity to chew the scenery by screaming at David Morris at the top of his lungs, which is met by Nick's nose hold, which is absurdly goofy along with everything else about this adaptation. It is so goofy that when Nick releases its hold, it comes with a sound effect to punctuate the point. While Engel takes control of the plane, Dean Stockwell forces everyone to share their name and motivation so the audience can get a sense of who these characters are. Now, I'm going to make a note right now, guys. I'm going to be honest with you. I think that we have come to that point in our relationship. I was having an incredibly difficult time getting through this one. And the movie had just started at this point. Bronson Pinchot starts at it again, and everyone takes turns threatening to pop him one. And the director chooses to film the scene with extreme close-ups of his face, which, you know, like I said, it... it it, it highlights his, his manic quality, but it just kind of comes across as wacky as well. And for whatever reason, Dinah projects into his head? I don't really know what's going on. He starts seeing monster faces, and Dinah turns to him. He clutches his head and screams. Dinah fills Laurel in about seeing into Toomey's head, and the dialogue is so forced, it's making me seriously consider quitting the podcast entirely. The horribly rendered CGI plane breaks through the clouds in a scene that they tried to make sense of but just couldn't pull off. And I know that things are supposed to be getting worse for the characters, but they're only getting worse for the viewer as the movie cuts to stock footage of forests and fields from overhead that are so jarring I don't know how the director allowed them to be included in this movie. They arrive in Bangor, filmed in Bangor, and the actors have to talk about how badly things feel, how there's no smell in the air. In the novella, King can dwell on this, but people just talking about no smell in the air is not an engaging experience. They claim there's no sound to be heard, and I wish that was applied to me as I'm forced to endure Craig Toomey's origin story with his screaming father, which he then reenacts on David Morse before being shut down with a single finger from Nick. While in the airport, they start to realize that things are dreadfully wrong and then to discuss dreadfully about how dreadful their situation is. And finally, Dinah puts her hand against the glass, states that she hears something, and despite the fact that she's blind, takes off her glasses to underscore the creepiness of her hearing something that we don't. Craig goes insane and the rest of them play with their food, having a riveting conversation over whether the food is spoiled or tasteless. And at this point, I have to shut the movie off for a third time since I've started it. Okay, round four. Pray for me, everybody. Albert is shot by Toomey, and Toomey is tied up and beaten by Nick, who is the only one who is taking this seriously. And just to remind us that he's British, the director makes sure that he uses bloody as an adjective and the phrase jolly good. Dean Stockwell, familiar with his time travel from his years as playing Al in Quantum Leap, monologues, dramatically, seriously hamming it up, about the time situation they have on their hands. It's a ridiculous speech. It's really over the top, but at least there's life to his performance. Stockwell is one of those great character actors who can chew scenery with just the right amount of control, where he's always acting and not really overacting. If anyone else had delivered that speech, it would have fallen flat, I guarantee you, but Dean Stockwell sells it. 
Later, Toomey tells us about the Langoliers, who despite his hands being tied up, can't help but steal the scene. He dramatically rolls towards Dinah to tell the tale of his father's boogeymen. And we're treated to our second monologue in less than five minutes. And again, we have another actor who is clearly having fun hamming it up, really playing it up so the back row can see every tick and grimace. Toomey stabs Dinah in the chest with a knife, and it's good to know that a chest stab results with zero blood. Nick's impromptu surgery comes next, and like most of the movie, it's flat, but the actor playing Nick is able to sell the intensity. Now it becomes a race against time in the most undramatic and unsuspenseful segment of television you've ever seen. Just as in the book, Ghost Dinah lures Craig onto the runway. The only thing that's good about this is the blood-drenched face of Bronson Pinchot. And in the distance, we see the power lines tumble and fall from the approach of the Langoliers. And in the middle of the runway, Toomey has a boardroom meeting with Stephen King himself. And then the Langoliers show up. I don't... I, I, my, I, this review and how I feel just feels like I'm stuck in the past where everything is flat because I don't have anything clever or humorous to say about this. It's just awful. It's awful, awful early 90s special effects, which is a major problem with this movie. First of all, it's, this, this is a movie that should never have been made in the first place. But if you're going to make it, make sure that you have the technology to make the, the title characters look anything other than awful. Anything other than the worst special effects that you have ever seen, because that's what they are. Plus, it doesn't make sense. We see dozens of Langoliers zipping around, but we're also led to believe that Toomey provided a distraction so the Langoliers wouldn't eat the plane or our other characters. But all we see are two Langoliers running after Toomey, which means that any of the other balls of teeth could very easily have gone after our characters. And it's the same thing that happened in the book. I didn't complain that heavily in the novella, but something about seeing it on the screen just points out its flaws. And the bigger problem here is that the movie just won't end. So I'm doing at this point what the movie won't and just stop. I'm sorry guys, I'm sorry, I'm throwing in the towel. Look, it is not like there isn't talent in this movie. I've already talked about Dean Stockwell. He's a bright spot in this otherwise flat, overdramatic miniseries. But standing alongside him are David Morse, who's one of those actors who manages to play quiet, hard, and compassionate men, which is a very difficult job to pull off and Frankie Faison, best known as Commissioner Burrell from Simon West's The Wire, who has one of the best lines on that show, which is comprised of hundreds of great lines. If the gods are effing you, you find a way to eff them back. This is Baltimore, gentlemen. The gods will not save you. I wanted to include the actual clip, but I couldn't because of the explicit content. But go on over to YouTube and actually hear him deliver it. It's awesome. Great show. Go watch it right now. And then we have Bronson Pinchot who will always be best known, sadly, with diminishing notoriety as each year passes as Balky Barktakamus from ABC's Perfect Strangers, a sitcom that used to air on ABC on Friday nights in the late 80s, early 90s during the legendary TGIF block on Friday nights. And then there's Tom Holland, the writer of Fright Night and Child's Play. These are classic, absolutely classic fun and effective horror movies. What I'm trying to say here is that there's talent here. There's talent. But the talent is never able to come together to make anything worth watching, which is unfortunate. And I think maybe it's because it's lifted beat for beat, word for word, from the novella itself. I've spoken before in different podcast episodes that when it comes to adaptation, 
I think the screenwriter and director should adapt and not just cut and paste. A movie, or in this case, a television miniseries, is a different medium than the written word. Experiences play out differently from a performance than from reading it, which is a very internalized and personal experience. The reader can impart his or, own, his or her own connotations, feelings, memories. It can be more or less profound based on the time it takes for a reader to read a text. Time can speed up or slow down if a reader chooses to take his or her time to fly through the pages. The words themselves are spells that, when cast, create magic that blooms within the reader. A written scene can invoke a particular emotion based on word choice or sentence structure. That same scene, if played out physically and superficially on the screen, will fail to land the same impact if it's not dissected for how it works, why it works, and what it is trying to impart upon the reader. And once those questions are asked, the adapter has to take the information generated from the answers to those questions and then has to determine how he or she can recreate the scene using the tools of the medium in which he or she works. That's the problem when people take King's dialogue and transpose it directly into a movie. Or in this case, when Stephen King himself adapts his own work. This movie, this TV miniseries, is simply the novella recreated on screen. And it just doesn't work. Period. Because it's beat for beat the exact same story. So do I recommend the Langoliers? Absolutely not. I guess if you are, if you have nothing to do on a weekday night or a weekend night and you want to have some friends over for a laugh, I guess you could put it on. Even then, I don't know if you're going to get anything out of it. It's two hours too long. I, again, I just don't know why it was made, but it was, and here it is, and here's my review of the Langoliers. So, the good news is this is being released around the same time as the other reviews for Four Past Midnight. So you don't have to wait. This is under half an hour, so all you have to do is just move on over to the next podcast and start listening to my review of Secret Window, Secret Garden. Thanks, everyone. Like I said, if you have not done so already, feel free to head on over to iTunes to subscribe and write a review. That would help me out greatly, and I will see you here next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King Cast. Strumming on the old banjo, strumming on the old banjo. Strumming on the old banjo.